Good morning. So I was away this week in uh, Nashville, and our youth pastor Ben was sweating it because I told him that if I didn't get back in time, because I flew back yesterday and my flight was delayed, I told him that he would be uh, preaching this morning, and so he was sweating it. He's glad that I did make it back, and I'm uh, glad to be here as we wrap up our uh, series through the uh, book of uh, Titus. I I think it's important, especially when you do uh, a shorter series, uh, but really with any sermon series, to just uh, think, like, what what is my walk away? Like as I, as I look back over the last seven weeks, uh, as we wrap up this series, what's my one walk away, my one takeaway through our study of the book of Titus? I mean, because Paul tells us in First uh, Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the goal of teaching is life change. Not just the gathering of more and more information, but that that information might make a difference in our life. And so, as you look back over these last seven weeks, what's your takeaway? Like One of my takeaways is just what we've seen in the graphic that we've shown each week, that our sound doctrine... Uh, should ma- be matched by sound living. And so as you think about this graphic, does, does your belief and your behavior match up? Do they look the same? Does one explain the other? And so as Paul wraps up, I'm going to start in Titus 3, go back one verse to verse 8 to kind of introduce the theme here. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack Nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so in this final charge to this young pastor, Titus, this disciple of of Paul who's been left on the island of Crete to kind of get everything, get the church established, deal with some issues of error and heresy. Like Paul is telling Titus that we have to be decisive. We have to be decisive about the divisive. We have to be decisive about those who would, in the context of the church, be divisive. So how seriously do you as a Christian or you as a member of this church, how seriously do you view divisiveness in the church? People who would 
cause disunity, who would complain or gossip. I mean, you know, I mean, I hope you know that as a result of division in the church, like families leave the church. And believers get shipwrecked in their faith because of division in the church. Jesus is mocked. And the gospel is disregarded. Disregarded, And so how seriously do you view divisiveness in your church? Like how, how seriously would you view it if it was your family? If you're gathered for Thanksgiving and there's that one cousin or nephew or son or sibling who it's there, like they see it as their role to point out all the errors and to get people to form in different camps. Like how would you deal with that in your own Family, we need to be decisive about the divisive. Paul introduces the topic this way in verse 8. He says, this saying is trustworthy. He's referring back to the doctrinal creed that we talked about last week that was all about the Gospel and what God in His sovereignty as the triune God did to secure our salvation. And so he says, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things talking about sound doctrine so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works talking there about sound living and then he says these things sound doctrine sound living these things are excellent and profitable and so Titus insists on the gospel, insist on sound doctrine and sound living because they're excellent and they're profitable. Stress the gospel. Like you can never talk too much about the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. And so Paul tells Titus to focus on the gospel, focus on sound doctrine and sound living, but then he tells them to avoid some things. But... Like kind of returning to an earlier discussion they had had in chapter 1 about false teachers and legalists, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so Titus, avoid foolish arguments and avoid spiritual bullies. Like people who are trying to wreck the church or wrench it out of your hands. Now, not all controversies are to be avoided, just the foolish ones. Like the Greek word there is the word moros from which we get moron or moronic. And we've probably all seen discussions, even within the church, that you just think, what kind of moron would find themselves in the midst of this controversy? I mean, it's moronic. This is so stupid. Why are we arguing about this? Why are we even talking about this? Why are we giving our energy and our time and our passion to this topic? Paul speaks about genealogies and dissension and quarrels or fights about the law. And he's basically saying, listen, avoid speculations, right? Avoid arguments that either have no conclusion or they undermine the conclusion that we do have. Like stay away from those. You need to avoid them. Why? Because they're unprofitable and they're worthless while there are other, other discussions that are excellent and profitable. And part of spiritual maturity is learning which is 
which. Like that's part of being mature spiritually. In fact, part of spiritual leadership is insisting on that which is profitable. Like as I read this final charge from Paul to Titus in this short letter, I would bet that Titus is wishing that Paul would have ended on a high note, right? Like on a positive note, like in verse 8. Like it's all good in verse 8, right? Like he's just talked about the gospel. Like how the gospel was driven by the love of the Father. That we were purchased through the, the sacrifice of the Son. And that it was the Spirit of God, God's Spirit, that applied that work of salvation to us. Like that's a high note. Why didn't he end on a high note? Like I'm sure Titus would have loved to have been called to the church to, to be the positive pastor in the healthy church, in the God-fearing community. But we don't get to choose the times in which we live, do we? Like that's just not how it works. Like I've been reading, and by reading I mean listening to, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, series. I'm in book two near the end of book two, the two towers. And I'm listening to it because like I, I told my wife that the world is just so messed up right now. It's so divided. Like there's just so much just yuck that I was just ready to just kind of immerse myself in something that was pure and whole and good. Where there was a clean, clear distinction between right and wrong, like you see in the Lord of the Rings. Like there is that point early in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, where Frodo is kind of bemoaning the fact that he has this heavy burden to bear. Like he has to take the ring of power, the one ring to rule them all, to Mount Doom to destroy it. And so he says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Titus, you're there on Crete. You're not in Ephesus with Timothy. Right? You're not in Hutto with Bobby. Like you're on the island of Crete and this is the ministry that God has given you and it's going to be hard at times. But you need to prepare yourself for the hard times as well. Like one of the best pieces of advice I'd been ever given as a pastor early on, like 25 years ago, was that if I want to do ministry for the long haul, like be in ministry and survive ministry and survive church, right? And finish well, I need to develop thick skin while maintaining a tender heart. Like I need to have thick skin because there are going to be complaints and there's going to be division and there's going to be petty pettiness. And if I just let that affect me, go right down into my heart, the result will be I'll have thin skin and a hard heart and I need just the opposite. Like Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, Am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Titus, you're a servant of Christ. 
Like stand firm. You're not going to please everybody, but make sure you please the one who enlisted you into service. So Christian, do you have thick skin and a tender heart? And so guys, we stress the gospel here. We stress sound doctrine here because it's excellent and because it's profitable. And we try to avoid foolish controversies because they are unprofitable and worthless. Like they're not worth our time. They, they are of zero benefit. They waste our time and they waste our energy and they waste our passion. Remember, this is the kind of teaching that Paul says in chapter 1, verse 11 is ruining entire households. And so he has tasked Titus with the job of shutting it down. And this requires balance. It's, it's work. Like we need to maintain, like we need to fight the good fight while at the same time we need to avoid getting in the mud and wrestling with pigs. As you've probably heard before, if you wrestle a pig in the mud, you'll both get dirty, but the pig will like it. <laughs> and see, that's how heretics are. That's how these false teachers are. They would love to get into a long series of debates and arguments with Titus or Apollos or Paul or whoever because it builds their case. It gives them the microphone. And so instead, in verse 10, he says, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way, reject the divisive person after the first and second warning. Like there's one word there in the Greek that is, is translated in the ESV, stirs up division. And God, the Spirit of God in His sovereignty used it only here in this one verse in the entire New Testament. And it's the Greek word heretic os. What does that sound like? Heretic. Like later, it was just transliterated from the Greek into English as our word heretic. And so we know what a heretic is, right? A heretic is somebody who <clears throat> claims the name of Christ and yet undermines just the basic doctrines of and like the, the core orthodox teaching of Christianity. That's what a heretic was. But in the first century, that word heretic, os, meant somebody who was quarrelsome. Somebody who builds factions. Somebody who was determined to get their own way, and so they build a team for themselves. And guys, I want you to understand this because it's, it's actually huge. I don't want you to miss it. The Apostle Paul and our church fathers viewed anyone who would divide the body of Christ as a heretic. Anybody who would bring disunity into the local church was a heretic. John Calvin, writing a commentary on the book of Titus, 450 years ago, put it this way. He, has, he says, we have to see what Paul means by this word heretic. 
because there's a common and well-known distinction between a heretic and somebody who's merely a schismatic, somebody who divides people. But here, in my opinion, Paul disregards that distinction. Thus, under this one name of heretic, he includes all ambitious, unruly, contentious person who, led away by their sinful passions, disturb the peace of the church. In short, every person who by their overweening pride breaks up the unity of the church is pronounced by Paul to be a heretic. I mean, that's how seriously Paul deals with this topic. Like it's a big deal. Like Paul calls it out clearly in 1 Timothy 6 when he writes this. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree, that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Stay away from these kind of people. He says the same thing to the church in Rome where he writes, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In writing to Titus, Paul just simply says, you have nothing to do with them. Like that word means to decline or to vo- avoid, to dismiss, to reject or to drive out. Like Titus, I want you to stress sound doctrine and sound teaching and anyone who would cause compromise for either of those things needs to be confronted and if they are unrepentant, they need to be driven out from the church. Like if they want to live like by their own authority instead of the authority of Christ, let them but not within the church. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, give them the utmost liberty to live as they choose, but not within the church. Like this is what theologians and pastors and church folk call excommunication. Like in a very literal sense, excommunication is to be barred from communion either the gathering of the church or the Lord's table. And it is seen in the Scripture as the final stage of church discipline. I mean, this is what Jesus wrote about or spoke about when He says in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. So if he listens, it's all good. We don't move on from there. Like if your brother sins against you and you go to him and he listens, 
Good news. You're done. It never moves on from that point. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hey, you may be wrong, they may be wrong. But if you bring some well, you know, well-meaning, discerning, godly folks with you, they will be able to figure out what the problem is. And if they listen at that point, good news. We never move to another stage. But if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, years ago when I first started here, one of our elders at the time told me that on a Sunday morning he was asked by somebody, hey, does Hutto Bible, does this church practice church discipline? And he said, well, and, and so I told him, well, we do, or, or at least we're willing to, we just have never had to. You know, we've never got to the point where it's at that third stage and they've been excommunicated. But we're willing to. And so I just said, well, in the future when you're asked that question so that you could give the <laughs> correct answer, this is what you ought to tell them, okay? If they say, does, does Huddle Bible Church practice church discipline? Say, absolutely. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Like it's never reached the point at that point in our church's history where we've actually had to excommunicate someone. However, like whenever a brother is messing up and his small group leader sees it and goes to him in private and that person responds and says, thank you, and they repent, good news. There's no second step. But if it gets to a second step and they respond, good news. And guys, that kind of stuff is happening all the time because that's how brothers and sisters treat each other. And so Paul says here that this person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And this is why, knowing that, like this is the information you're working on, knowing that because they're unrepentant, such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned, which is really harsh, right? Once again, Titus at this point is thinking, why didn't you just end with verse 8? Like verse 8 and then say, thanks, goodbye. But we get to this point, and you're calling these people warped and sinful and self-condemned. Like, what does self-condemned even mean? Well, literally, it means to judge down on yourself. Like, it, it's saying that these people who are warped and sinful are actually <laughs> passing judgment on themselves. Like, they're actually condemning themselves they know exactly what they're doing and the result of their choice either to live in a way that does not line up with sound teaching or to teach in a way that is not sound teaching regardless they are excommunicating themselves they did this like parents come on like you've said this to your own kids i'm sure like here's the rule if you break the rule, this is the consequence. And if I have to bring the consequence, dad is not the bad guy. You are. Like you did this to you. 
And so don't hit your brother, but if you hit your brother, you're going to get a spanking. And then you're going to say to yourself, hopefully, why am I giving myself a spanking? <laughs> like that's what Paul is saying to the church here. Listen, these people are self-condemned. And so why would they live in such a way that's just so foolish and reckless? Well, he says because they're warped. Like literally, they're twisted, they're distorted, they're perverted. They're literally turned inside out. You can't reason with them because they're unreasonable. And it says because they are sinful. Now, if, if we're going to discipline all the sinful people in our church, uh, we're not going to have church next week, right? <laughs> and you're not going to have a pastor next week. But the word sinful here is is in the present tense, and so literally it means not that they are sinful, but they are continually sinning. That's the pattern of their life. That's their settled state. Like they are believing what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. Their heresy in teaching has followed their heresy in living. It's like I want to do these things I want to live this way, and so I start shopping for a worldview, a theology, a doctrine that will allow me to live the way I want to live. And so these people who are self-condemned are doing this because they are warped and they are sinful, and sin, when it is fully grown, according to James, gives birth to death. And this is why we have to be decisive about the divisive, because sin leads to death. It's destructive. It wounds them and it wounds everyone around them. And so how would you respond to this? How do you usually respond to this? We kind of shrink back away from it. When it's a divisive person, we don't want to kind of be in their orbit or maybe you're the kind of person who loves to be in their orbit. Right? Either way is not really healthy. How should we deal with divisive people? First off, hear this. Don't divide over non-essentials. Don't divide over non-essentials. Like in our church here, we have people who would describe themselves as non-charismatic. And then we have people who would say they're charismatic. We have people within our church who are Calvinists and people within our church who are Arminian or more Arminian and all the flavors in between. We have people in our church who hold to six literal 24-hour days of creation and people within our church who believe that the earth is 4.5 billion years old and that God did it over a vast amount of time for His glory and His enjoyment. We have people in our church who are pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, and yet we all get along because those things, though important, are non-essentials. Like we have people in our church who love Harry Potter and people in our church who hate Harry Potter, right? These are things that are non-essentials. And we don't divide over non-essentials. Like we used to be able, remember this in the good old days, when you used to be able to agree to disagree wasn't that crazy what a simple time that was how quaint because now we live in the most divisive era i think in history but certainly in our own lifetimes like i was in nashville this week hanging out with my daughter and my brother and his family and my brother told me that in a recent 
study, a recent poll found that 70% of vaccinated people are refusing to celebrate Thanksgiving with their unvaccinated relatives. I mean, they'll go to the grocery store and get a turkey from some germy person, but they won't sit down with their mom or dad or brother or sister. Like, that is crazy. Don't divide over non-essentials. And, just as important, don't make everything a non-essential. Like, there's some people who are just like, well, I'm just a gospel person. And they shrink the gospel down so small that you could believe just about anything as long as you believe Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Now, you don't want to bring sin into that because that really messes everything up, right? And so guys, there are some things that are absolutely essential and we will divide over that and that's okay because that person chose to get their spanking at that point, right? Like this is who we are and this is where the church has always stood if we're going to be orthodox, if we're going to be historic, biblical Christians. Like we can disagree over non-essentials. In fact, guys... If you're not a member here, we can even disagree on the essentials. We're just never going to give you a microphone. We're not going to give you a class to teach. But we can disagree. But don't make everything a non-essential next. Don't play favorites. If we put this teaching into practice, don't play favorites. I've seen this firsthand and it results in the spiritual shipwreck of people. When you like discipline this same-sex couple that comes to your church, but the, the couple of it where a guy and a gal are just kind of shacking up, well, that's okay. When you, when you discipline this person who's messing up morally, but the person who you like, who's your friend, you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. No, stand with what the Word of God says and deal with things correctly and biblically and kind of let the chips fall where they may. Don't play favorites. Now this is why a lot of people want to obey this command in Scripture is because they have favorites. Now I understand that some people, when you have a conversation with them, and I've seen this myself, I've heard these very words, why are you singling me out? Or why am I the only person you're confronting? Can I just tell you when somebody says that, often in my experience is because they do not consider the private nature of the first two steps in church discipline. You go to them in private or you take one or two witnesses with you for the second time. You don't bring it before the church. You don't know about it because it was done in private. Why would you know about it? Another reason you don't know about it is because it's incredibly successful. Believe it or not, when you go to somebody in love and you speak the truth to them, they say, yes, amen, I repent. Like that happens all the time. So don't play favorites. Next, don't let go of hope. Like this is intended to be what theologians call this church discipline step, even the final one. It's intended to be redemptive exclusion the goal is that your brother would not be kicked out forever but that they would ultimately be restored paul writes in second timothy 2 
that those who oppose him, talking about the leader of the church, he must gently instruct in the hope that God would grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Don't let go of hope. Like you're instructing, you're teaching, you're confronting, you're going to them in private with the hope that the Spirit is going before you and convicting them. And your voice, even though it's all alone, joins the chorus of the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then understand finally here that the only sin that truly warrants excommunication is impenitence. The only sin that warrants true excommunication is if when confronted by whatever you're doing or for whatever you're doing, you are unrepentant. You don't listen. You harden your heart. Like sometimes when you look at somebody and their life is off course, you need to look for the trajectory of that life and you'll realize often that here's a person who's trying to follow Jesus And just like you and just like me, they're tripping up along the way and you get to come alongside and help them. Where there are other people, when you look at the trajectory, it's somebody who knows better, they're choosing this anyway, and they're using it to harden their heart against Christ. Spend some time getting to see the trajectory. That's how we should do this. And now, why should we practice this quickly? First is for the good for the good of that person being disciplined. Like we don't do this here. This We don't confront people because we really love confronting people. Man, I'm so psyched today I get to sit down with somebody and just let them have it. Like, guys, if you're the kind of person who loves to confront other people, please don't. You're the last person who needs to do this. Like Paul writes in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We do this because we want to see him restored. We do this because we love them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency that abandons others to sin. See, we think it's being gracious. We think it's being compassionate when you see someone off course spiritually and you don't say anything to them because you know I, you know what? I'm, I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. Like, But he says, no, that's not compassion. That's being cruel to them because now they're going to get more entrenched in that and trapped and that sin's going to become a, have an addictive hold on their heart. And then he writes, nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's own community back from the path of sin. And so we do this for the good of the person being disciplined. We do this for the good of other believers, for the health of the church as a whole. Paul writes that avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. And so to overlook the sin of division is not gracious, it's dangerous. And so we do it also for the corporate witness of the church. Understand this, guys. 
if this is your church home and you're unwilling to fight for the unity of our church, leave and find another church where you're willing to fight for that unity. Like we should view divisiveness seriously. We should obey the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.3 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because as Tim Chester writes, Paul is passionate about unity in the church because this is God's eternal plan. This is why Christ died. And through our unity, we display God's wisdom. When viewed in this way, suddenly we can see why there is a real, uh, why there is a need to deal decisively with the divisive person who promotes disunity. This is what is at stake. The purpose, the purposes of God, the work of the cross, and the success of the mission. And so we practice this for the glory of God. And so just in conclusion, one practical question for all of us to answer is, how can you guard against becoming a divisive person yourself? How can you guard against becoming a gossip or a conduit for division? Because honestly, if we didn't listen to this stuff, people wouldn't be saying it, right? Like if we didn't listen to gossip, gossips wouldn't be spreading it. If we didn't listen to heresy, heretics wouldn't be teaching it. Like have you ever had somebody come up to you and say something like, hey, you know me, I'm, I'm not a gossip, but. <laughs> you know, right? That person is about to gossip. Like has anyone ever said that who's not a gossip? Right? It's like saying, you know me, I'm not a racist. And then they're going to say some really racist stuff, right? You know me, I'm not a gossip, but you know me, I'm not a complainer, but you know me, I'm not divisive, but they should be saying, you know me, I'm not self-aware. <laughs> we, here's a practical standard, Christians. We should set for ourselves. If you are not either part of the problem or part of the solution, you need not be part of the conversation. Hear that. If you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, you do not need to be part of the conversation. And I know we hate that because we love to know stuff. We love to know those nasty little tidbits. Right? I mean, when was the last time anyone ever gossiped to you positive information about anybody? Hey, did you hear about Julie? She is so gracious and generous. No, nobody wants to hear that. Like, I want to hear the dirt. Like, give me the dirt. And so if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, you don't need to be part of the conversation. And if you interject yourself into the conversation, you are a gossip. I love what Chester, Tim Chester writes. He says, when it comes to grumbling or gossip, we should be a buffer, not a channel. When we hear grumbling or gossip, we should act like one of those huge buffers at the end of train tracks that stops trains careening on out of control with the crash inevitable further ahead. Stop gossip and complaining in its tracks. Bounce it back to its source. 
Another way to do this is to ask the ultimate gospel-killing question. So how did they respond when you brought this to their attention? And then just pause and don't say anything. It's really awkward, isn't it? Like they come to you with some information about so-and-so, about one of your elders, one of your pastors, your small group leader, some couple in your small group, somebody in your Sunday school class, somebody at work, whatever, and they say, did you hear about, and they start telling you the information, and you stop them in their tracks and say, oh, how did they respond when you brought this to their attention? Can I just tell you, they didn't. They didn't bring it to their attention. Nine out of ten times, that person has never heard this information from the person that is spreading it. I would say 99 out of 100 times more likely. So that's the ultimate gossip-killing question. Here's another thing that Paul tells us to do to stop division. If you want to stop division, if you want to stop complaining, if you want to stop gossip, then make yourself too busy to be a busybody. Make yourself too busy to be a busybody. Like six different times in this short letter, Paul tells Titus to stress living in such a way that matches our gospel claims. In fact, he ends with, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Instead of getting caught up in discussions, instead of arguing about politics or about COVID or about whatever, make yourself too busy to be a busy body. Hold to sound doctrine while practicing sound living. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would prize high what you prize high clearly from what you teach in Scripture from the nation of Israel through to the church, from the teaching and the Gospels to the practice in the book of Acts by the early church and the teaching by people like Paul and John and Peter and Jude. Lord, You prize high the church living in unity. And God, as we live in unity and love one another, the world looks on and they know something is different. Lord, help us to be men and women that are different as we hold to sound doctrine and encourage each other as we struggle toward living lives that honor You toward sound living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I was just thinking that if, if you went over, if you had a next door neighbor and you went over to their house and every time you were over there, they were smacking their kids or lecturing them, you would think, this family has a, has a problem, right? Like, but, but if the goal of that was to kind of help your kids, like live the right way, I mean, your ultimate goal in mind is that they're a train wreck and you don't want them to wreck the lives of others, then you would at least kind of understand what was going on. I think that's what's happening in the book of Titus on the island of Crete. He's Paul's dealing with some heavy-duty things like doctrinally, about living, about church discipline, because the goal ultimately was that the gospel would shine forth from this beautiful bride. That the island of Crete would see the thing that their hearts long for, the hope 
of the nations, that they would come to Christ. That was the goal of planting churches on the island of Crete. And the same is true here. Like we deal with hard things within the church because our goal is to reach a city that desperately needs Jesus. Austin needs Jesus. The city of Hutto needs Jesus. And if we are hypocrites, they're not going to listen to us. If we play favorites in regards to church discipline, why would they listen to us? And so we want to line our lives up like our sound living with the sound doctrine as communicated in the Scripture so that the nations would know. That's what it's all about. So I hope you all have an awesome week. God bless you, church. We're going to have some folks down front, elders and their wives, if you need to talk or pray with anybody. Thank you.